Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. Beginning in verse 11 this morning. Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 11. We are zipping through this chapter. Zipping through. Uh, we want to continue our study here this morning of this fascinating yet challenging epistle. We're almost through all the doctrinal parts, so take heart. We're almost through the heavy lifting, if you will. That runs all the way through the middle, uh, up to verse 18 in chapter 10. And then we get to the practical application, apart from uh, chapter 10, verse 18, until the end uh, through chapter 13. So that doctrine is all laying the part, if you will, the foundation for the practical application. Of course, that's how it is, in, uh, especially in Paul's writings, right? Paul, if you think about uh, the book of Ephesians, right? One through three, doctrine, 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 right? Four, five, and six, how to live that out, right? Uh, the book of Ephesians is, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Colossians is the same way, right? I just said Ephesians. Uh, Colossians is that way. Philippians is that way, right? Halfway through, you've got your a doctrine, doctrine, and then practical application, practical application. And so we see that same uh, style. It's not really half and half here in the book of Hebrews, but there's a lot of heavy doctrine that you have been sorting through that will help us as we get to the practical application part. All right. Well, the author, if you recall, described for us the tabernacle in verses 1 through 5. Uh, hopefully that's at the top of your notes from previous review. Uh, and that's the place, the tabernacle was the place where God met with his people. You will recall that both the design of the tabernacle and the furnishings did what? They pointed to Christ and his future ministry as our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Our Once inside the Holy of Holies, each of the furnishings represented a ministry of Christ as our great high priest as well. The showbread pointed to Christ as the bread of life, right? The uh, lampstand pointed to Christ as the light of the world. The altar of incense represented the prayers of intercession on behalf of God's people. And the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, which uh, in the Greek is the seat of propitiation. Okay, The seat of propitiation, which is uh, propitiation is... Uh, uh, means to turn away God's wrath, all right, or to appease God's wrath, to turn away God's wrath. So uh, that pointed to the one who would be the propitiation for our continual sin of breaking God's law. God was the one who prescribed these things for a reason, very detailed. He uh, showed Moses a very uh, and explained to Moses exactly what he wanted. Right? How many rings there would be? How long the poles would be? How long, what they would be made of? Who would be doing it? What they would be engraved with? What color they would be? What design would be on the veils? How tall the veil would be? How long the uh, tabernacle would be? How wide it would be? What the bronze laver would be made of, and the design of it, and the altar of incense, and on and on and on. Very, very specific. No deviation. It meant to show them that God had a very specific design on how he wanted to be worshipped. And we could not just come into God's presence under our own terms and, and tell him, this is how I'm going to worship you. God said, no, I am God, and this is how you will worship me. 
You remember when God's presence was would go upon the holy mountain, he warned them, don't you set foot on that mountain unless I have given you access. Don't even let the animals set foot on the mountain or they will surely die as well. And now he tells them, build this tabernacle right in the middle of your camp so that my presence will be with you and you will know that my presence will be with you. But that doesn't mean that all of you are just going to stroll into the tabernacle and then tell me how you're going to worship me. No. Only the Levites will be allowed to administer this this worship service. And then only the holy priest, the high priest, I'm sorry, should only be allowed to come in once a year into the Holy of Holies. And then with very specific attire, with very specific ceremonial washings, with very specific instructions on how and what he was supposed to do one time a year on the Day of Atonement. The message was clear. God's presence will be there, but you will not stroll into his presence and worship him the way you think you want to do it. See, the design of the tabernacle, although it was pointing to Christ, pointing about this great high priest that we would have in this future ministry, all through the years of the law, all through that time, it also emphasized that there was a barrier present between the worshipers and God. The outer court separated the Gentiles from the Jews. The inner court separated the Levites from the non-Levites. The first veil separated the priest from the non-priest. The second veil uh, separated the high priest from the common priests. It was a restricted earthly sanctuary to those seeking to worship God. Verses 6 and 7 in your notes there, again up at the top. We said last week that the first point is that worship in the Old Covenant was restricted and inadequate. Restricted and inadequate. That first inadequacy we saw in verse 6. That comes from the outer tabernacle as they conducted worship. I want you to notice, first first of all, that there was constant repetition needed in the worship service to be able to worship God. Some things had to be repeated over and over. Remember, the priest had to go in and make sure the lampstand was lit at all times, right? The coals were burning on the altar of incense. Right? They had to go in there twice a day and do that as well. And then there were the sacrifices that were going on. So, I mean, you had, there was constant activity all of the time. Every day, over and over again, the same act of worship was required. The work of the Levitical priest was never done. They never went in and sat down. They, they were busy. They have very specific things they had to do. The second thing I want you to notice in that outer tabernacle, which would be the first first part, the, the holy place, was that the worship was restricted, of God was even restricted for the priests. Not just the people of God, but even the ones God had said were going to, if you will, minister in the tabernacle. Every day, the priest would come into that outer tabernacle to serve and worship God and have some indirect fellowship with God through the ministry of the lampstand and the altar of incense. But there was always a constant reminder that God was still over there, and here I am here, even for the priests. So remember, the people aren't even allowed to come in, right? The average, you know, the Israelites aren't allowed to come in beyond a certain point. Then the priests, they could go in to the holy place, but there's still another veil yet there. 
So the message was clear again, even for the priests. God's still over there. You're here. Don't go beyond the veil. Any access, direct access to God was restricted. And the second veil is a constant reminder of God's presence just on the other side of that veil. That's where God is. Notice in verse 7, it also showed us that there were additional restrictions and inadequacies of worship in the Old Covenant, even in the Holy of Holies. Not just the holy place, but the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year on the Day of Atonement. We find that in Leviticus 16. And then in verse 8, we saw our second point. The Holy Spirit demonstrated that sinful men could not approach a holy God. Sin had to be atoned for. It had to be reconciled. Something had to happen. And as long as that veil was separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies, sinful men would know they could not just approach God on their own terms and without reconciling for the sin in their lives. Verse 9, we saw our third point. The gifts and sacrifices offered could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why? Because as sinners, we have an inner consciousness of guilt that keeps us from drawing close to God. We know when we're in sin, we have this thing called a conscience that tells us what I have done or what I have said is sinful. And it's a reminder that as long as that sin is unatoned for, that we have a barrier. This one we created because we've not reconciled with God. Remember, for these, for these, uh, for the Israelites, year after year, they'd have to go down Jerusalem to Jerusalem with their goats and their calves and their heifers, and repeat these rituals again and again and again and again. And the very rep repetition reminded you that there was no final forgiveness provided by those sacrifices. If it was, why am I going back again? So it was a constant reminder that something greater, something beyond was needed that would actually cleanse your conscience or purify your conscience and not leave you with that guilt. Verse 10, we saw the last point, that worship in the Old Covenant was external and temporary. External and temporary. The author offers two reasons. First, they were just external regulations for the body. The, impl the implication is they couldn't deal with issues of the heart and the conscience. They were just ceremonial. It was an external cleansing, not an internal cleansing. Second, they were temporary. And the text even tells us they were imposed until a time of reformation. That time of reformation, that word reformation means a time until things are set right. Okay? So the old covenant could not set things right. But the new covenant can and did. And that's what we're going to talk about in the last section of this, from verses 1 to 14, is one section, if you will. This last little section here with, in verses 11 to 14. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that if you understand the architecture, how the tabernacle was designed, and the furnishings of the tabernacle, if you understand what all that was pointing towards, and if you understand the ritual of the Old Testament priests, then you will understand that Jesus fulfills 
all of that, that he's a better priest and a better mediator of a better covenant because Jesus actually fulfills the things that Jeremiah 31 to 34 said in the new covenant would happen. That Christ fulfills it all. So, that's all background. Let's go to Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for the privilege, Lord, to explain and exegete and exposit your word. Thank you, Father, for the privilege I have to do that each week here. I pray, Father, that you would give us open hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. That we wouldn't just be sitting here thinking, boy, that really, that really steps on my toes, but really the person next to me needs to hear this more than I do. I pray instead, Father, that we would first ask ourselves, dear Lord, what would you have me do with this understanding? That we would apply it to our own lives first. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at our text together here, beginning in verse 11. But, so after all that we just got done talking about, right, verses 1 through 10, right, uh, and especially here when he just said that the time of reformation, right, until the time of reformation, reformation then he says, but, well, in contrast to that, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So here is the first thing I want you to know, is that Jesus worships in a better sanctuary. Okay, that's in your notes, first your notes. Jesus worships in a better sanctuary. How does Christ fulfill this new covenant? How does that going to affect our worship? Because remember, back in verse 1, he's talking about worship, and now he's kind of bringing it full circle, right? He talked about the rituals and the regulations in verse, I mean, the regulations and the furnishings in 1 through 5. Then he talked about all those priestly rituals and what those meant in verses 6 through 10. Now in 11 to 14, he's going to say, those were all done in the earthly tabernacle, which, remember, is just a copy or a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. And the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary, is where Jesus is our great high priest. And that makes a difference. And, going clear back to verse 1, it affects our worship. Understanding that, understanding the truth of that, is going to affect how we worship. So verses 11 and 12, he's going to present to us the realities of his ministry. And then in verses 13 and 14, he's going to give you the results of his ministry. So let's look at that again here. Okay, so the first reality in Christ's ministry, notice in verse 11, it says, greater and more perfect tabernacle, not man-made, not a part of the creation. He's already telling us that this is a different kind of tabernacle than the one that they see in front of them. It's not an earthly tabernacle. It wasn't made with human hands. It's not part of this creation. It's different. And it's different for a reason. This one is in heaven. This Holy of Holies is not a constructed room where the uh, Ark of the Covenant would be, where God's presence would come. 
so he could be with his people. This is where God dwells in the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies. This is where Christ is anchored behind the veil. It's in the Holy of Holies, the real one, not a copy, not a, not a shadow, not a symbol of what was really going on in the spiritual world in heaven. Not that one, the real one. Look at chapter 9, verse 24. He's going to come back to this again. He's going to explain it even a little bit more. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But where, instead of that, into heaven itself, now to appear where? In the presence of God, for what reason? For us. For us to minister for his, to his children. The old priests under the old covenant were restricted, as we discussed, in their access to God. Even the high priest had restrictions. For example, only could enter the Holy of Holies and then only once a year in a very specific manner. None of the priests in the old covenant, including the high priest, could have ever have brought any of those other Israelites with them into the holy place or into the Holy of Holies. Never could have happened. But since Christ is anchored there, you know what the result of that is? Is that we have access to God unhindered, unrestricted. If you're a child of God, you can close your eyes in prayer and be in the very throne room of God. Do you realize how special it is? Do you realize how many Old Testament saints couldn't even dream of that? They couldn't even dream of like seeing the furnishings. They were taught about and they knew what they were supposed to look like, but they were never in there. You're in there. And you might be saying, well, I'm not really not sure, Pastor, if I really know that I'm in there. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. See, none of those priests of the Old Covenant could have brought you in there or any of the rest of the children into God's holy place or the holy of holies, but Jesus can and does. Did you know that you are true, if you're a true child of God, that you too are in the holy of holies, in the presence of God? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, my two favorite words in all of Scripture, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together, how with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, watch this, raised us up with him, and did what? Seated us with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, spiritually speaking, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You already have access 
to all those spiritual riches that he offers. Maybe not in full completion yet, because we're not on that, this side of glory. We're still on this side of glory, I should say. We're not there completely yet. But boy, you have access to a lot of his spiritual riches. Here's the other thing I want you to remember. There's, there's not a moment of your life, if you're a true believer, that you're living without the presence of God. They could only dream about it. They could only, you know, uh, really imagine what it would be like. And if you're a true believer, you know what it's like to have that kind of access to God. Look uh, on your way back, uh, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. We're going to look at verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place... How do we have that confidence? Not because of something we've done, but because of what Christ has done on and for us on our, on our behalf. To enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That he provided the way through us by his atoning work on the cross, and because of his sacrifice of his own blood, the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, we now have access into the Holy of Holies. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a wonderful thing it is to have access to God unhindered, all because of Christ's ministries. Christ's ministry is in a better sanctuary. It's in the real sanctuary, the sanctuary of God. So the first reality of Jesus' ministry in the New Covenant is that he ministers in a heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly one. How, is that, how should that affect our worship? Well, we have complete unhindered access to him, and he is always with us spiritually. But that's not all. There's yet another reality of his ministry, and we find that in verse 12. Point number two, Jesus not only... Uh, ministers in a better sanctuary, he also offers a better sacrifice. He offers a better sacrifice. And as we saw last week, the old sacrifices were looking forward to a greater sacrifice, right? Each of them were just a symbol of what was to come. That's why they were continually repeated. But Jesus' sacrifice, remember, was not repeated, but instead was once and for all, once and for all. When he shed his blood on the cross as a sacrifice, he was actually fulfilling the promises made through Jeremiah the prophet about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Matter of fact, that's what was in chapter 8, right? In uh, Beginning in verse 8, right? A new day is coming when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant which I made with their fathers the day on the day when I took them by the hand and led them into the out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. What's this new covenant going to be like? He tells them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws where? Not in stone tablets in an ark, but where? In their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Do you remember what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed? Look at Matthew 26 for just a second. Gospel of Matthew, verse 26. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took, took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup... And given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying all those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, did they forgive your sins? No. <laughs> but my blood shed tomorrow, he's saying, will. It will forgive all the sins of all those who trust in me. Because it's not just a symbol that we need to be forgiven. It's not just a symbol that forgiveness comes through the blood sacrifice. It's the one and only true sacrifice by which the sins of all those who ever lived, who trust in me, are forgiven. As that great hymn so states so eloquently, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, there's a uh, there was a man out with his wife. They got caught in this terrible hailstorm, hail and the hail was as large as baseballs. And under the deluge coming against them, the man realized that if he didn't do something, his wife would be severely hurt. He quickly draped himself over his wife, covering her with his own body so that instead of the storm hitting his wife, they would hit him instead. And, but the hailstones seemed to get bigger and bigger as the man bent over his wife protecting her. And the hailstones, the larger ones, came down harder and harder and harder and they hurt him badly. After a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding along with some spots on his head. And the man tried to lead his wife to safety, but the stones were coming faster and harder, and the pounding stones finally took their toll. Weakened by the onslaught, the man finally collapsed over his wife, only able to shield her from the danger. After the storm was over, the man was left with scars from those hailstones that battered him, and the remnants of those sores and cuts and abrasions would forever be reminders of that day 
when he saved his wife. This is a true story. On the local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about their experience. And she said, every time I see the scar, I love him even more. Because he sacrificed himself for me. When you and I get to heaven, Jesus will be the only person in eternity with scars. He will have holes in his hands. He'll have holes in his feet. He'll have a hole in his side. And he will be our eternal reminder that the only reason you are there is that he stood between the wrath of God and judgment headed your way. He covered you with his love. And he allowed none of that hail to damage you. He was disfigured for you. That's the love of Christ, my friends. That's the love of Christ. What is this result of this better sacrifice that Jesus offered where the text tells us? He has secured an eternal redemption. He has secured an eternal redemption. What Christ accomplished was nothing less than a full pardon of your sins. Did you, do you all know that? I mean, do you really know that? Sometimes I think we forget the gravity of that statement that just kind of tumbled out of my mouth. And we as Christians, we just kind of roll that by. Yeah, my sins are forgiven. But do you really realize what that means? My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. Can you say that with me? My sins are forgiven. You know, we carry around a lot of guilt sometimes, a lot of shame, things that happened in the past. But if you're in Christ Jesus, what? My sins are forgiven. I don't have to carry around that guilt of something I did or something that was done to me or shame that was brought to me. As long as I'm in Jesus Christ, my sins are forgiven. You know, we need to be reminded of that. And the price that was paid through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that has pardoned you past, present, and what? Future. You have eternal redemption. Not temporary redemption. Not momentary redemption. You have eternal redemption. That means that redemption will be good next year. It'll be, it'll be good the year after that and the year after that. And those who are his until either we go to meet him in the air or he comes to take us home. By the way, did the high priest ever obtain eternal redemption? No. Just Jesus. Jesus provided a redemption that only a, that's not only past but also present and future. So Christ ministers in a better sanctuary which gives us unhindered access to God. Secondly, he offers a better sacrifice that's not the blood of animals, but his own. That is once and for all, instead of needed to be constantly repeated. That provides eternal redemption, not just a temporary covering. So we've seen these marvelous realities in verses 11 and 12 that fulfill the new covenant. Now let's look at verses 13 and 14 to see the results of this ministry and how that affects our worship. Let's look at that together. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify 
for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Point number three. Jesus' ministry purifies the conscience and sanctifies our service for true worship. Jesus' ministry purifies the conscience and sanctifies our service for true worship. What happened in the Old Testament? Worshippers offered sacrifices. Was there any spiritual benefit in that at all? Those sacrifices sanctified the the offerers so they were ceremonially clean on the outside. Goats and bulls spoke of the offerings on the Day of Atonement. The ashes of a heifer spoke of an offering which provided purification to the ritually unclean if you had touched a dead person. That's in Numbers chapter 19. I'm just kind of skipping over those a little bit because we still got more to go in chapter 9 and 10 yet. They're going to go. We'll come back to those again. So these offerings were provisions for cleansing them from fleshly defilement, external defilement. And so that provided them a temporary ceremonial cleanliness. But they could not give inner spiritual cleansing. Only the blood of Christ could do that. Only the blood of Christ could touch your conscience. The Bible teaches that our the conscience alone, though, is not an infallible guide. Through repeated sin, the conscience can be defiled. It can be seared, we find in First Timothy, our Titus in First Timothy 4. So our consciences need to be informed and trained through Scripture. And as we learn who God is and what His holy standards are, our consciences accuse us of how sinful we really are. God's commandment applied to, as Jesus did to the heart level convicts and condemns us all. We have to scrape away the veneer of that face we like to put on when we're around other people, even at church. Call that our church face. You know what the church face is, right? That's the one where you can be arguing in the car all the way to church with your kids or with your spouse, and then you walk in, Hey, Bill, how are you? Your spouse is looking at you like, who was that? What just happened? And your kids are looking at you going, oh, that's how we do church. Oh. God's commandments applied as Jesus did to the heart level, convict and condemn us all. None of us, beloved, none of us, myself included, come close to loving God with our entire being. Or to love our fellow human beings as we love ourselves. Part of God's work in regeneration is to bring his holy law to bear on our hearts so that we despair of any way of trying to justify ourselves. The old system said, if anyone will make a sacrifice, he can be ritually cleansed on the outside. There you go. The new covenant says, if anyone is in Christ, he has become a new creature. So how can our guilt be removed and our consciences be cleansed? Only through the sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. 1 Peter 3.18 
For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Or Paul put it in Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a turning away of God's wrath in his blood through faith. Our guilt is not removed by just saying we're sorry. Our guilt is not removed by doing a bunch of good works to make up. Our guilt is totally removed by God's free gift through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we receive that gift through faith. But you may be wondering, well, if it's totally by God's grace, apart from anything that we do, won't people take advantage of that grace and just live in their sin? I mean, hey, if the more I sin, the more God's grace abounds, I'll just keep on sinning, and God's grace will just envelop me. I'll be smothered in God's grace. Well, Paul deals with that in Romans 6. I hope to get to some year. But our author here counters that same objection in verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 9. Why has Christ done all this? What is the purpose of this astonishing eternal redemption that Christ has achieved? How should that affect our worship? Verse 14 tells us to serve the living God. That's what's supposed to happen. Now these words stand in contrast to the dead works he was just speaking about. Not dead works, but serve the living God. In order to fully understand them, you have to think again about the original recipients of this letter. Remember, these are people who are, many of them are flirting with the the notion of abandoning their Christian faith and returning back to this old system. The writer of Hebrews' point is that for them to do so would be to engage in dead works. Dead works. It would be returned to a system before Christ came that was at best restricted, superficial, and limited, but which now, since Christ has come, has been rendered completely obsolete and pointless, if you remember our text in verse 10, and of no value whatsoever. Christ has not achieved all that he did in order that they might go back to what was now unnecessary and worse, pointless, Rather, he was purified. He has purified their consciences regard to their standing in front of him, not because of something they did, but because of what he did. And he's done this for what reason? That they might serve God, that they might live for God, and that they might worship Almighty God. Not as those who are yet in need of further forgiveness but as those who have been fully forgiven and as a result are now free to serve and worship God from that perspective. What perspective? As a people who have been completely forgiven and who have access to God. That's what that should look like, beloved, as we live out our lives. That's why Christ did it, to reconcile us with God, so that we might live a life where we serve him and worship him and live for him every day. That's the hope of the writer of Hebrews. He wants his readers to embrace. That's the hope that we, too, need to embrace. So what does that look like, then? What should our worship look like? My friends, 
one commentator helped us with the application of these wonderful realities in respect to our worship. Let me share some of these with you. He says, God calls out his people to be a worshiping people. And that never changed. That never changed. When the commands were given to Israel by God through Moses, God set the regulations to worship him. Worship is the issue. It's always been the issue. It will always be the issue. But worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or Wednesday evenings. Worship is meant, listen to this, it's meant to encompass your entire life. Worship is an attitude of the heart which desires to please the object of our worship, God. For the world, worship is also very important. They may not always recognize that they're in the act of worship, but if worship has more to do with devotion to what is most important in life, then you'll find their worship is quite evident. Their devotion may be passionate, but unless it's directed to the one true God who set the standard for how worship is to take place, then they've set their standard and erected their own altar upon which they bring their sacrifices of their own making. I had a friend tell me, I'm, Pastor, I'm really worshiping God when I'm out on the golf course. And I said, no, you're worshiping golf out on God's course. The world's devotion is directed to self, to material things, to other people, whatever else is deemed to be important in life, which would cause them to place these things as their most important reason for living. And it can be anything. It can be their job. It can be their career. It can be their happiness. It can be their family. It can be, you can build an altar for any idol in your life, but anything that takes the place of God is an idol in your heart. Paul touches on this in Romans when explaining how sinful and rebellious men chose not to worship God. Instead, they replaced God with worldly, worldly things and gave their lives to these things so that they would become the center of their lives. They exchanged the truth of God, Romans one twenty five, for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator. As believers in Christ, God calls you and me to be true worshipers in spirit and in truth. But to do this, we must understand that that involves every aspect of our life, not just what we do when we meet here for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's important. Do not forsake the assembly. We talked about that in Sunday school. We need this. We need each other. Our faith is to be lived out of community. But what God is talking about in worship and why Christ paid the price he did is so that you could serve and worship him, not just an hour here or an hour here, but every day of your life. That you would present your bodies, your life as a living sacrifice to him. When we understand what worship is, we'll then begin to place all of life in his hands as we trust him and follow him. And that's essentially what worship of the one true God is. If worship is being passionately devoted to something or someone with the express purpose of ele elevating them to, the, to that to the highest degree, then it stands to reason that we as believers 
should take every breath we have and give God glory as he's the focus of our lives. And then we rely on him and give thanks to him and follow him and depend on him for everything. And that's not limited to a Sunday morning event, as important as this is. It should encompass every moment we live in this world. Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It begs the question. Are we worshiping God with our lives at work? Are we worshiping God with our lives when we're shopping, when we're alone, when we're at home, in our families, in our marriages, with our friends? Is God the passion of our lives when it comes to the material things he's provided for us? Or are the material things the passion in our lives? Are we delighted in our salvation as we look to him by desiring to give it away, to share the gospel so that others can too embrace this and live in the light of that salvation? This is what God desires from his people. He doesn't want us to simply fit him into our busy schedules. He wants our busy schedules to glorify him as the world sees that we belong to him. By faith. It's not that as though God is looking for us to just give him an hour or two on Sunday mornings. He wants 24 hours a day, seven days a week until he takes us home. That doesn't mean he wants us to neglect life as he's placed us in the world to live and to work and to take care of responsibilities. But he doesn't want those things to be the focus of our devotion. To where he takes a back seat waiting for us to find time to worship him. He doesn't want to be over your families. He wants to be in it. He wants to be the center of your families. He wants to be the center of your work. He wants to be the center of your lives. When we begin to understand that, beloved, when we really grasp what that means, and his love for us, then our priorities will begin to come into line and will take the proper place he wants in our lives. And we then begin to see what it means to offer our bodies, our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. Beloved, all that Christ did for you provided the way for you to worship him as he desires. The old covenant could never have done that. But in the new covenant, Jesus has provided a way for you to worship him as he desires. Because the reality is, is that he worships in a better sanctuary. And the results mean we have unhindered access to him and his continual presence. He dwells within us as believers. The reality is he offers a better sacrifice. Not temporary, but eternal redemption. How does that affect our worship? First, our conscience is clear of the guilt of our sin. Past, present, and future. You are forgiven. 
Secondly, our service is sanctified. It's set apart for him. And with a pure conscience and a sanctified service, we can worship him continually, both corporately and individually, as we live out our lives as a spiritual act of service. Are you living your life for his glory each day is a spiritual act of worship. That's really what the author of Hebrews wants to leave us here with. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just putting on your church face? Is your heart bitter about things, angry about things, angry with your neighbor, angry with your spouse, angry with the world? Or are you living your life where Christ is the center and the priority of everything that you're doing? If you're not doing that, is it because you're worshiping something other than him? Have you allowed something to come into your life that you justify is not that important, but everything that you do is centered around it? If so, you're worshiping a false god, a god of your own creation on an altar that you built by yourself. It's not too late to change that. You can begin today and each day thereafter to live your life in continual worship of him. If you're not doing that, I pray you repent of that. Bring that to the Lord. Repent that, confess that, lay that at the foot of the cross. If you are doing that every day, may I encourage you to just tell you that there's probably more we can give for him. I pray that's your heart today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the challenge from your word here today. Father, it's so easy for us to just get caught up in the busyness of life and forget that we are forgiven. Not because of something we did, but because of what you've done for us through Christ. Lord, that is so important because that then opens up continual access to you that we could boldly, with confidence, approach your throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And Lord, we're a needy people. Also, Lord, we've been pardoned forever. There's therefore no condemnation in us who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever happened in the past, whatever we did in the past, Lord, was wiped away through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It isn't a temporary cleansing not something external, but internal. Lord, may we truly meditate on what that means then as we live our lives. Do we live our lives, Father, we ask ourselves, as people who have been forgiven, as people to whom love Christ and are in Christ every day? I pray, Father, that you would convict us if that's not the case, if we've allowed something else to come in and be placed on that altar. I pray we'd confess that, Father. Encourage our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.